Well, I understand that in the afternoon services recently, Lord's Day 1 was skipped over in the regular order, so we go back to Lord's Day 1 this afternoon, and in connection therewith, we read a few verses from Philippians chapter 1 and from Colossians chapter 1. Philippians 1 verses 12 through 26, and then Colossians 1, 15 to 23. Philippians 1, verse 12. Hear the word of the Lord. I want you to know, brothers, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. Paul's talking about his imprisonment. So that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brothers in the Lord, having become confident by my chains are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached and in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell. For I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you for all your progress and joy of the faith that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. Then we turn to the next book of the Bible, uh, Colossians 1, verse 15. Well, Paul writes these words about our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked words, works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. Indeed, 
if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which all I, Paul, became a minister. This is the word of God. And then comes the words of the Catechism. Verse day one. <coughs> what is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. What do you need to know in order to live and die in the joy of this comfort? First, how great my sins and misery are. Second, how I'm delivered from all my sins and misery. Third, how I'm to be thankful to God for such deliverance. After the proclamation of God's word, we'll praise God with the words of hymn 64, stanzas 1 and 2. Beloved brothers and sisters in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, generally speaking, the age in which we live is not an age which values doctrine very highly. We live in a time when space has to be provided for everyone's opinion, room for anyone's viewpoint. It's a product of the enlightenment of a spirit that says all truth is relative and there are no absolutes in life whatsoever. Postmodernism, I believe, has pretty much accentuated that. Years ago, I attended a postgraduate course in theology where the scriptures were the, being discussed, and the textbook was called the Postmodern Bible. When asked in this seminar what a specific text meant, the typical reply was, it means whatever it means to you. There are no more absolutes. There is no right to be distinguished from wrong. Truth is relative. It all depends on where you're at and what it means to you. And if it speaks to you, well, then God be praised. It fits with today's millennials, the generation X, Y, Z, or Alpha, whatever the case may be. Meaning is something you shape. You shape your world with all your social media, and I will shape mine. It's a concrete result of the Enlightenment. It shows the bankrupt nature of the words of Descartes even. I think, therefore I am. You are what you think. Separate your thinking from the world, from God, and this is where you end up. I appreciate instead a more recent approach which says, you are what you love. Where's your passion? What do you love? Do you want to influence behavior? Want to influence young people? Want to influence those in your, in your flock as an elder? Talk to them about the things they love. Talk to them about where their heart is pointing as a compass points. 
I suspect that better defines what each one of us is today. You are what you love. Or in the light of Lord's Day 1, you could say, you are whom you are loved by. Because this is the wonderful truth of Lord's Day 1. Do you believe? Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Then you are loved. Loved by the Almighty God and His wonderful Son, those who suggest there are no absolutes are contradicting themselves because that alone is an absolute statement. If there are no absolutes, then I don't know who I am, where I come from, where I'm going, then I can never understand this world or much of anything in it. But when you continue to embrace the absolute truths of creation, providence, redemption, the life and death and return of Jesus Christ and what it all means for you, that's when you can live and live wonderfully. For in this Lord's Day, and even throughout this document, which we are going to look at on Sunday afternoons, you do that according to practice, we come to see how rich doctrine is. Doctrine is not cold, factual, brain food for special cerebral people. Doctrine is life. The Catechism shows it to us again and again. The question is never just what do you mean by this doctrine? Do you understand this? But the question is, what benefit? What joy? What comfort? What blessing do you get out of this particular doctrine and this one and that one? Doesn't Lord's Day 1 set the tone in this regard? This is pastoral stuff. Here is encouragement for the discouraged hope for the despairing life in the face of all the death around us. God's Word comes to you this afternoon as it has been summarized by the church in the first Lord's Day under this theme. Our only comfort in life and death, we belong to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. We'll pay special attention to the first question and answer, and we want to see, first of all, the penetrating point of its question, and secondly, the beautiful breadth of its answer. So the penetrating point and the beautiful breadth. Brothers and sisters, I'm sure that all those who are familiar with the Heidelberg Catechism will admit that there's probably no question and answer that is more beautiful than this first one. In catechism class, the first question and answer is often viewed as the title of this book, our catechism. And the second question and answer, it gives us the table of contents, as it were, showing us the threefold division, guilt, grace, gratitude. If that is so, then it's in agree this booklet, this catechism, <coughs> has a most splendid title, Our Only Comfort in Life and Death. But it seems to me the first question and answer becomes all the more splendid when we pay particular attention to the careful way in which the question is phrased. The answer to this first question contains so many beautiful elements that there's a tendency to almost ignore the question in order to get all, to all those beautiful elements of the, of the answer. But if you, first of all, see the point, the penetrating point of the question, then you see the answer even more clearly and more delightfully. For look at it again. What is your only comfort in life and in death. Notice, first of all, that word only. The Catechism doesn't ask, what is your greatest comfort? What is your chief comfort? 
That would make it somewhat relative. If the catechism would say something like that, it would be admitting that in this life there are many more comforts, and of all those many comforts that there are, this is the greatest and the best. But no, the question of the catechism says, what is your only comfort? One and only. It's speaking very dogmatically, if we can. It asks, what is that one comfort with which nothing can compete, with which nothing can compare? It's like a physician who offers you just one and only one particular treatment for your disease and says to you, besides this, there is nothing else that will help you. But even with that, we still haven't seen the penetrating point. For notice that it also says, what is your only comfort? both in life and in death. Ponder about that for a moment and you see that what the catechism is saying is that this comfort is not only going to be your only comfort, it's also going to be your only comfort in any and in all situations in life or in death. To extend this physician metaphor, it is now like a physician who doesn't just give you one and only one medicine for your illness, he now claims to be giving you one and only one medicine that is going to help you in all your troubles and in all your ills. It might not cure everything, but it will help you in all situations. You see, if the catechism would only ask, what is your only comfort in death, then we would have no problem with this question. For after all, death is the great enemy. That's the great unknown that awaits us, and that's why even we come to church, because there's death, and after death, then what? It even makes sense to speak here of a one and only comfort, for we know very well there is nothing else in all creation that can comfort us in the face of the reality of death. But what we have difficulty is the idea of a one and only comfort with respect to life. For it seems to us life has its many comforts to offer. On the whole, this life is quite good to us. Sure, there is pain and there is suffering and there is sorrow and grief and much toil and trouble, but there are also so many other things in life that give us happiness and pleasure and comfort. Isn't that how you and I live? We divide everything into two classes. We put the things of this present life on two piles. In one class, there is pain and there is hardship and there are the, the, the tears and the troubles and the trials and the burdens. But there's also this other pile, the joys and the pleasures and the fine things of life. And whenever things become too much over here, then we just turn over here and we say, yeah, but we have so much to be thankful for. Even in the bitterness of life, we manage to find some sweetness. In the darkest of clouds, we manage to find a silver lining. And so to us, to speak of one only comfort in life and in death sounds much too strange, rather absurd, much too abs absolute, too dogmatic. Why, if it were not for death at the end, we would get along quite well without any other comfort than those we find in life. Uh, my comfort in life is so many things. The fact that it rains and the sun shines. I have enough to eat and drink. I have a good job, a comfortable house, a fine car. There's a doctor in the case of illness. And I have a fine wife and dear children. In this land, there's peace and prosperity and so on and so forth. Yes, if we can have all of that and if you would just remove death, we could just live forever the way we are. But yet the question will not go away. What is your 
only comfort in life and in death. In all situations, it has a penetrating point. And now when you uh, turn to the answer, you discover why it is this question is worded as it is. For notice that this answer, it speaks from beginning to end about one person, one person, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Often in preaching and in speaking about this answer, there's a tendency to divide it up in, in three parts, the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that's legitimate, but really, even though the Father and the Spirit are mentioned, the chief subject of this whole answer is Christ and Christ alone. Notice he's the subject of every verb. It is to him, my faithful Savior, whom I belong with body and soul. And it is Christ who is the one who has fully paid for all my sins and set us free from the, from the devil. And he is the one who preserves us and makes all things work for our salvation. And it is by his Spirit that he assures us of eternal life and he makes us ready to answer, to, to live for him. The answer of the catechism is an answer that says we receive everything that we need in and through Christ. It's why it's the biggest question of your life. Even if you would decide to turn away from the gospel, turn away from church and never come back again, you would still have to go to the grave answering this question. What do you make of Jesus Christ? We know from historical sources that he lived upon the face of the earth. What do you make of him? That question will be with you to the end of your days. And that's why it's such a beautiful answer. Here lies the answer to the question. Why this first question is phrased as it, as it is. It lies in Christ and in his nature. In the kind of savior, the kind of person he is. One of the most regrettable ideas has done and threatens to do ever so much damage to the whole cause of Christianity is this idea. This morning I mentioned this idea that once you commit your heart to the Lord, then everything is fine. Well, no, Paul says, you got your body, you got everything to put your whole life, you got to commit everything. But there's another idea which says Christ is nothing more than a savior for your soul. Jesus is nothing more than a solution to the problem of death. No more than an antidote to our mortality. It's the fruit of false pietism. It relegates Christ to a very limited role. If Jesus is nothing more than Savior for your soul, nothing more than a solution for man's mortality, then that allows us to divide everything into two. To be Sunday Christians so that we can overcome the threat of death, but for the rest to live our lives as we ourselves desire. To live part of the time in the world of grace, in obedience, but for the rest to live in the world of nature, in obedience to ourselves, and obedience to this world. But notice the authors of the Catechism know very well that Scripture never speaks of a Christ who is just a savior of your soul, just an antidote to death. Think, for instance, of the exalted language of Colossians 1. Be sure Christ needs to be Savior of your soul. Otherwise, you are in everlasting trouble. But He needs to be much more than that. The Savior of your life, Savior of your body, and all that you have, and all that you are in life. 
When Paul speaks to the Colossians, he uses none of this restricted terminology. Rather, he sees the person and the work of Christ in all its cosmic and universal proportions. He speaks of Christ as one who is not just a Savior, but as the Lord of all creation. He says, all things in heaven and on earth were created through him. And with a view to him, to his glory and his victory, Christ is the Alpha and the Omega. Nothing exists that exists. Nothing moves that moves. Nothing develops that develops. Nothing happens that happens. Whether light or darkness, sin or grace, the devil or the Antichrist, whether life or death, sickness or health, prosperity or adversity, joy or sorrow, war or peace, angels or principalities, nothing exists or acts apart. From him. The world is upheld by him and governed by him. All the lines of history converge in him. The theologians sometimes wonder well, how do we make our doctrine of providence Christological? Well, it's here in Colossians 1. All things consist in Christ. The world that you live in consists in Christ. The pew you sit on, everything exists in him. Life may seem to be a hopeless chaos of vanity of vanities encircled by the threat of death, but in Christ, who is the Lord of all things, they have their unity and their reason. In Him and through Him, they all work towards that final and eternal state of glory. It's not even the prime ministers and the presidents of the world or the United Nations who control the world. All in Christ. Without Him, what would there be? Nothing but chaos. You see the same thing in the passage of Philippians that we read together. There Paul is in prison. He considers the very likely prospect that his imprisonment will mean death. And so in this passage, he puts life and death in the balance. He places them against each other. He asks, which one should I choose? Which one is preferable? What does he decide? Does he decide that death is preferable because then he will be with Jesus? No, he says, it's a hard choice. Which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. It's a hard ch choice because while Christ presents the one and only answer to the problem of death, Christ is more than just an answer to death. Life is not irrelevant to him either. He put us here for a purpose. The life that Paul might continue to live on this earth is not a life apart from Christ. Paul knows he has a purpose he doesn't say, death is Christ, and that's what I want. The choice is hard precisely because life is Christ. Life is about Jesus Christ. To die is gain because it means to be with Christ, but to live is glorious as well because live, to live is Christ. That's precisely the language of the first question and answer of our catechism. The Catechism speaks of Christ as our Savior who has paid for our sins and released us from the threat of death. It speaks about Him as our only comfort in the face of death. Without that, you have nowhere to turn. Without that, funerals are, are forever empty. They're meaningless. You call them a celebration of life if you want. But, you know, I went to a funeral from one of my neighbors who didn't know the Lord Jesus, only nominally perhaps. You know what they said about Him? He was a great water skier. He was a great water skier. That's all he said. He was a great water skier. That's his life! Really? 
Look at that first sentence. I am not my own, but belong with body and soul to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Do you know what that is? It's the language of Colossians 1. It's the language that describes the master-slave relationship. It means to say, Christ is our Lord. Christ is our master. The Catechism speaks to you and me and all who are in the midst of life, and it says, this is his life. We, this is our life. We are his slaves, his servants. We belong body and soul, that is, with everything that we have and everything that we are in this life to him. That's the language of Paul. These are Paul's credentials. Read Philippians 1, Romans 1, Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ. So are we. What is, Colosh, what is the Lord's Day 1? It's slavery terminology. I have been bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what you did in the Greco-Roman world if you wanted a slave. You went to the market and you bought him. Well, Jesus Christ is the master who bought us as his slaves. And if one thing you have to realize is slavery, slavery is not necessarily a, a terrible thing. I, I once read a, a novel about a young man in the Civil War, in the American Civil War, and we were holidaying in Gettysburg, and I read this novel, and it told the story about all these slaves who were set free, but then many of the slaves and this particular person just wanted to go back to his master. Why? Because his master was a good master and his master took care of everything for him. His master provided him with a house and provided him with a job and was kind to him and extra gave him extra money. And now he was set free and he had, a, he had a mortgage, he had to find a job, he had to find a house, he had all these kind of problems. Slavery is not so bad if you have a master. Now, I'm not promoting slavery, but I'm saying think about it in its context. Also, it's Greco-Roman context. The point is, Jesus is a great master. And if you want to think more about this, then you should read Romans 6, especially the last half of Romans 6. Romans 6 is basically saying, you've got to serve somebody. It's saying to the Romans, there was a day when you served sin, and you served with your body, and with your mind, and with your heart, you served sin, and you were enslaved to it. But there's a better slavery, Romans 6 says. It's a slavery to Jesus Christ. If you have not decided that Jesus Christ is your master and your Lord, then you are doing that precisely because you are in a slave to sin and to unrighteousness. Life is a choice between two masters. Who would you serve? Sin and all the consequences of sin? Or would you serve Jesus Christ? That's the point of the wages of sin is death. What does it mean? Who pays better, sin or Jesus? The wages of sin, what you get at the end of the day, is death and only death. But the wages of life in Jesus Christ is life eternal in Him. But that's not all. The Catechism goes on to say that this Savior, He now also preserves me in such a way that without the will of a, my Heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. 
You know what that is? That is Christ exercising, as the Lord of all creation, exercising His universal lordship. It is Christ, my master, watching over me and all of creation to make sure that nothing does me serious harm, that nothing leads me away from the goals. He so guides all of creation, even the tiniest things, in such a way that whatever happens to me happens not by chance, but by His Father's will. It's the master looking after the slave. It's my Savior helping me through thick and thin, through trouble and trial, so that He continues to get some benefit from me. We think we know best as to what's good for us, but the Master knows better. God knows better. And then the catechism goes still further and says, by His Holy Spirit, He also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready to, from now on to live for Him. What is this? It's again Christ exercising His universal Lordship. All things consist in Him. It's the Lord of all creation watching over me. He who is Lord of all creation not only looks after my bodily and physical welfare, but also my spiritual well-being. He not only looks after the things around me, He also works in me, in my heart, in my life, in my will. Remember this morning? Our wills. We have to use them. The Spirit, He changes our will so that we walk according to God's ways. When there are doubts about my salvation, when there are troubles and trials and all the doubts that come with it, He sends His Spirit. He doesn't just want slaves who serve Him because they must, because they're afraid of punishment, afraid of death. Christianity is not a drudgery unto death or a drudgery that you have to go through so you can escape death. Christianity is a joy for the people of God. It is the best way to live because now we are in tune with the creator of life and the redeemer of life and the sanctifier of life. He wants slave servants who serve him because they want to, because they love him. We are loved by him and you are what you love. If you love sin, I guess that's what you are. If you love Jesus, God be praised. How does He make us like this? By His Spirit. He makes His Spirit, makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for Him. Do you see it? If Christ is nothing more than a restricted Savior of sorts, whether you want to restrict him to your heart or to your soul, nothing more than an antidote for death, then indeed you can't draw much comfort, and then everything is limited. But if Christ is this kind of Christ whom we have been describing, if he's the Christ of Colossians 1, if he's the Christ of Lord's Day 1, his value is unlimited. He's a comfort not only in the face of death, but in the face of whatever life throws at me. Think about it. Inflation runs out of hand. It's getting there, they say, today. Economic depression comes to the world such as never has been before. It means you lose your job and you walk the streets. It means all your savings are consumed and your future looks bleak. What is your only comfort? Is it that someday the evil days will be over and prosperity might return? Is it that you still have some money in the bank? Maybe you don't for long. Or is it that you belong 
to Christ. And He is Lord of all creation, and nothing happens but that which happens by His providence and care. Or again, maybe you become sick, maybe through COVID. Week after week, year after year, you travel through suffering and have to live constantly with pain. What is your only comfort? That there are physicians? That you can maybe look forward to recovery? No, that you belong to Christ who has His purpose also in this, whatever it may be, and will strengthen you even through it. Or imagine death enters your home and takes away a dear child, tearing it from your very heart. What is it your only comfort? Is there any other comfort than the fact that you and your children belong to the Lord Jesus Christ? Or war rages and the very foundations of the earth are shaken. The threat of the nuclear holocaust looms overhead. What is your comfort? Is it that we have bigger guns or bigger bombs? Or is your only comfort in that in all the confusion and all the suffering that you belong to Jesus Christ who so watches over all of creation and over you that nothing will happen to you that is outside the will of your heavenly Father? Is it not clear then? Don't make Him just the Savior of your soul. That's just comfort for you so that at your final day we have something to say at your funeral. Oh, He is that, but He's better than that. He's more than that. He's your one and only comfort. The Lord Jesus is the fulfillment of Lord's Day 23. He is the great shepherd, the one who makes you lie down in green pastures, the one who leads you beside still waters, the one who restores your soul. Even through the valley of the shadow of death, you fear no evil, for he is with you. His rod and his staff, they comfort you. With him, I shall not want. Goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And so the tone has been set, not just for 51 more Lord's Days, but for your life and for my life, my everything, body and soul, life and death. I am His. He is mine. Come what may, I am prepared. Are you? As one scholar put it, doctrine and life are intimately bound together. The only comfort does relate to personal faith, but thereby also to church, school, society, and state, indeed to each and every facet of life. Racial issues, poverty, abortion, all other current problems are included. Social, economic, and political subjects become concrete in the later exposition of the Ten Commandments. It takes, in fact, 52 Lord's Days for the authors of the Catechism to expound the full significance of this one and only comfort. Remember, it's only the title. And the title says, the whole book is about your only comfort in life and in death. There's a wonderful song that says it for us. What gift of grace is Jesus my Redeemer. There is no more for heaven now to give. He is my joy, my righteousness, my freedom, my steadfast love, 
my deep and boundless peace. The night may be dark, but I am not forsaken. For by my side, the Savior, He will stay. I labor on in weakness and rejoicing, for in my need, His power is displayed. To this I hold, my hope is only Jesus, for my life is wholly bound to His. Oh, how strange and divine. I can sing, all is mine, yet not I, but Christ, through Christ in me. Amen.